there's a rhythm in our meditation practice and our spiritual practice generally in which we, for certain periods of time, we have openings, we have insights, we learn, we have uh, sometimes wonderful experiences, and all seems good, we're ready to sign up, count me in for the rest of my life. And then we also have periods which may be uh, triggered more externally when there are challenges or difficulties. We work with uh, difficult emotions, maybe fear or anger or sadness. And we alternate at times between those two types of experiences. Ultimately, we want to keep learning from both types of experiences. And there's a very natural rhythm in life as well as in our practice where one may be more predominant or the other may be more predominant. And that certainly was the way my initial practice of meditation uh, sort of uh, developed. That initially I was... uh, Excited, I thought meditation was really cool. I was in my 20s. I um, went to retreats. I had some really almost life-changing insights. I had the kind of the uh, subtle energetic body opened up. uh, And whoa, look at that. Looking at the world in different ways. And I said, I'm ready to sign up for the rest of my life. Okay. And then I had some further period of time, maybe another six months or so, where things were mostly really, really positive. Then I did another retreat, and I came face to face with a lot of fear. And I looked into the fear, and I probably said to myself, this is not what I signed up for. (laughs) And... uh, I wish this would go away. But uh, the fear was in the workable range. I could stay with it and I had good guidance. And I learned tremendous amount. I had never looked at fear. I was able to look at fear eight hours a day, ten hours a day, for ten days in a row. It wasn't overwhelming. It was in the workable range, but it was still fear. And it was amazing. I could see, gosh... This is all future-oriented. I actually don't know what will happen. And I'm projecting these negative scenarios and believing them. And when I look honestly at it, I'd have to say it's illusory. (laughs) But it's still gripping me, right? It's about the future. And it was amazing. And so uh, I've, I've experienced, and maybe you have too, that there can be this alternation where we, where we go where we develop beautiful qualities, we develop mindfulness, courage, insight, understanding, compassion, equanimity on the one hand, and then other uh, experiences where we seem to have to work with difficulties. And of course, if we stay with them, we develop exactly those qualities I just mentioned. (laughs) But it it doesn't always seem that way. I think I mentioned last time actually looking at the Spirit Rug website and seeing that 
the publicity was notably lacking, if I could make a kind of self-criticism, self-critique, was noticeably lacking in saying, come to Spirit Rock, encounter fear. <laughs> Work with your anger. You know, you know, along with other things, along with other good things, it seemed to stress the positive, which um, I guess that's what advertising does, right? The side effects are always in small print. Right? And so, um, in a way, our practice is about opening to both. And when we understand that, things can shift. And we may even appreciate the challenge of uh, difficulties. We may sometimes say, that's a good challenge for me, even though we know it's going to be difficult. Let me go in that direction, right? How many of us do that at times? Yeah, it's important, right? I know that for myself, um, for, for many, many years, I've, I've noticed that uh, sometimes, either interpersonally or socially, when there's something actually important for me to say, but there's some concern about saying it, my body starts shaking some. Does anyone else have that happen sometimes? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. And I, at a certain point, I realized when that starts happening, I'm going to go forward. <laughs> you know, it's a sign. And there's a way that one can take um, a difficult experience and say, I want to open to it with the spirit of learning. Now, last time, I gave a talk a week ago. I gave a talk on how particularly to work with difficulties. And I did that partly uh, occasioned by the fact that I was personally dealing with some difficulties after a break-in at my home. You know, that occurred uh, a little over, about two and a half weeks ago. And uh, things, things have been moving along. It was, partic- it was somewhat dramatic because the thief broke three windows and got cut quite badly going into the house. So I had blood all over my house. You know, and it actually just, the last residues actually were just cleaned up yesterday. So I brought up that situation and went through uh, six ways of working with difficulties and told some of my own story in reference as well as uh, referring to other stories. I'm not going to tell so much more about my experience uh, today, but I wanted to review those six ways briefly and then bring in a very, very helpful further framework that is very useful both for exploring difficulties and for exploring good experiences that we get attached to. Okay, so I'll, I'll give a review and then give a, uh, a further teaching, which is a wonderful, amazing teaching, which we'll come to. It's called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. And it's very fundamental. So, uh, and then we'll have a chance to talk about it. Last, last week, I invited people to take those six ways of practicing and apply them to your own life in the week between then and now. And uh, I want to leave a fair amount of room for discussion so we can share some of what we might have found or you might have 
also uh, worked with difficulties, even if you weren't here last time. And I'll just mention that the talks here on Wednesdays are recorded, and the recordings are made available at the website, the website, uh, dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org, and they're freely offered there. So I talked about six ways of working with difficulties. I'll briefly review those. Uh, The first was work with a teaching that can guide you with the difficulties. And I gave, especially last time, this core teaching. That's, I think for me, my favorite teaching that goes right to the heart of everything we do here, the teaching of the two arrows, which many of you remember. And I'll be very brief with it now. It's basically saying when something difficult happens, try not to make it worse. (laughs) That's the essence of it. That is the essence of all these thousands of acres and thousands of years of history. It kind of boils down to something not too different than that. When you have something difficult, try to be responsive rather than reactive to something painful, unpleasant, difficult. That's ordinary English for this teaching of the two arrows. It's basically saying that our conditioning leads us often something Unpleasant happens, unpleasant physical experience, interpersonal experience, unpleasant emotions. We will tend to react to try to get rid of it. Not always, but that's a very common tendency. Someone says something really mean to me, I might react back right away with something mean. And of course, the conflicts in our world are conflicts where something bad happens to one side, And then the other side may react to make something bad happen to the first side. Very common structure. And so the first guideline for working with difficulties is see if you can really be guided by a core teaching. That's what they're really there for. They they give some guidance. Um, An example of this, somewhat of an extreme example, uh, there was a Tibetan... A teacher who was in Chinese prisons for quite a number of years. And he said that his guide was reflecting over and over again on one teaching. And teaching has some affinity to the teaching of the two arrows. It goes like this. This is what he remembered day after day for years. When the container and the contents are full of negativity transform adverse fortune into an awakening path. Use all immediate circumstances in meditation. It's a different translation from something that I often cite, which is transform all obstacles into the path of practice. That can guide you. Oh, I think uh, a person uh, who is here who sometimes likes to talk about, oh, another effing growth opportunity. (laughs) 
Now, we may think of it like that, but we can also frame it as uh, actually a learning opportunity. Can I take this difficulty and see it in a certain way so I'm open to learning and becoming responsive rather than reactive? Second guideline was try, even in the difficult circumstance, to develop mindfulness. See what's happening. You know, for me, after that break-in I mentioned last time, it was extremely helpful to be mindful and say, you know, I'm a little bit on edge, I haven't slept well, my body doesn't feel good, feels unpleasant. That was really, really helpful to know that, right? Otherwise, I could just be on automatic and react, right? Very helpful to know what the emotions are. Again, it's, it's simple. Um, when you can have mindfulness of what's happening, it makes possible not being on automatic and not being reactive. Again, very, very simple. So, of course, that suggests that having a regular mindfulness practice, even when things are not difficult, is crucial because it'll make possible the mindfulness being there when things are difficult. It's one of the reasons we practice, you know, and can really be amazing. I, I remember something, an experience that really amazed me quite a number of years ago when I was moving to California, I came, I drove across the country from, I was, had been living in Ohio at the time, and I, my car broke down in uh, Kansas City on a Saturday night when it was dark uh, on Route 70, uh, across on a bridge over, and it went down about 60 feet into a culvert. And there was no breakdown lane. And I broke down in the fast lane. Basically, my transmission went out. Later, I spent, you know, obviously I'm here. So uh, I spent, you know, four or five days in Kansas City motels while my transmission got fixed. But at that moment, I knew it was dangerous. And I was mindful. I knew it was dangerous. And for whatever reason, I wasn't scared. And I did what was necessary to do to maximize safety. And eventually someone came and uh, gave me a, uh, a kind of a push toe off the highway. Right? But there was some mindfulness there of what was happening and not being caught in things. I was amazed. I said, whoa, must be those years of practice. <laughs> okay. I can write a testimonial <laughs> and so forth. So... Um, Second guideline, develop mindfulness. And then, of course, when something is difficult is happening, can you be mindful? Not just uh, know what's happening, but also explore what's happening. You know, be with anxiety, be with fear, be with sadness, and stay with it in one's meditation. And that can actually help move things along. You know, that when we're with the difficult emotions, they don't stay static. They change, right? We may see what's at the root of a difficult mind state, right? So the mindfulness not only alerts us to what's happening so we can act as responsibly as possible, but it also helps us to explore things in a way which keeps us unstuck and things move. And mindfulness of something difficult actually is healing. It has healing qualities and properties. 
third guideline, learn how to come back to balance and non-reactivity if you get out of balance. This is a really crucial one. Sometimes we can't be mindful. We can't really stay with something and we're just overwhelmed or caught in fear, uh, out of balance in the body, in the emotions, in the thoughts. Thoughts are out of control. And so we need to have like a toolbox of a few tools that work for me personally, that work for each of us, that help us come back to balance. And so it might be uh, talking with someone close to you, really upset, somewhat out of it, overwhelmed. Uh, Human communication, talking with people close to you who can see you, understand you, obviously can be really crucial. Could be also doing something physical, taking a walk, um, you know, doing something quite exerting, you know. Uh, I've often had a regular practice. If I go to long meetings, I go instantly to lap swimming after long meetings. Very helpful. Anyone do something like that with, you can do that with difficult experiences. Doing, sometimes that's quite uh, wonderful balancing. I find that with difficult mind and body states, uh, lap swimming in the short run is more effective than a meditation period because it works with the body and the body energy. So some of you may have, you know, may find yoga, qigong, uh, you know, running, something like that very helpful. Of course, we can also be with beauty. Beauty is very good uh, when there's fear, for example. We can be in a beautiful place, be with beautiful art or music and so forth. And then we can also use meditative tools. And I mentioned last time how loving kindness practice, according to the traditional stories, uh, was given by the Buddha to a group of practitioners who were um, caught in fear. And he gave them loving kindness practice as an antidote to fear. And I've heard it used that way. I've had friends, for example, who were active in the student movement in Thailand who were imprisoned and spent time in prison when there was a dictatorship in Thailand. And were, um, they did, one person I remember, did loving kindness all the time to stay balanced in prison. Right? And it worked. Right? That loving kindness has that capacity partly because it's a concentration practice to shift our mind out of things. And it's particularly, again, you have to do it regularly, but if you do it regularly, it can be really effective. For example, it's an example I often give is three in the morning, something didn't go well yesterday, or my mind is going somewhere, I'm really upset. So a practice like mindfulness may be not what's called for, because at three in the morning, we're very vulnerable. But loving kindness as a concentration practice can actually shift us out of what's happening. So what that's saying is that the usual strategy with mindfulness is to try to be aware of what's happening and be with it. But when there's overwhelm or too much, that's not a good idea. Actually, we want to do something which brings us back to balance. That mindfulness isn't going to work. I mean, unless we're, unless we're very, very advanced practitioners. That, uh, but something like loving kindness brings us back to balance. Then we can maybe use mindfulness. So sometimes meditative tools can work as well. The fourth guideline was, is to 
uh, inquire more deeply into the difficult experience. It really follows from what I was saying about being mindful of fear. Look deeply, not to be simply mindful and know what's happening, but also study one's own reactivity. Notice the tendency to shoot the second arrow. We can start to see sometimes our own patterns. And there can be, at a certain point, we can actually get really interested in the ways that we personally lose it. This is not a beginning stage of practice. But at a certain point, we get interested. Oh, I'm losing it. Oh, let me real, an opportunity for learning. Let me look carefully. Let me notice my, let me notice my patterns. What triggers me? I'm actually serious. When, when one has that attitude of practice, things accelerate. Can you imagine? Again, it has to, has to be workable. That's the key here. You know, part of the last uh, guideline that I used is making a determination, is this workable or is this overwhelming? Is this too much? And I, I use sometimes, as you know, the scale used by Olympic divers of one to 10, degree of difficulty, okay? Is it degree of difficulty nine or 10? Don't try to be mindful. <laughs> use something else. Is it four or five? Okay, maybe you can really study it. So having that determination, really, really crucial. And we can sometimes see old patterns and we may sometimes see patterns that have been there for a long time that difficulties offer us a chance to look at some old pattern and to work through it more. Interesting perspective, isn't it? It's not what we mostly think or contemplate, but that's possible. The fifth guideline was to generally keep on developing good qualities. We're in a difficult time, still spend a certain amount of time developing what we sometimes call awakened qualities. Do things which develop more uh, kindness or compassion or patience or equanimity. That in the long run, our practice is partly to work with difficulties, but partly keep cultivating beautiful qualities. And as they get stronger, there's the the center of gravity of our own being shifts to where the awakened qualities, the beautiful qualities are stronger. And then the last guideline was, or is, (laughs) the last guideline is bring all of these more inner practices and connect them with ways of responding more skillfully outwardly, of course. I'm not focusing on that so much. We could do a whole another five items on outward response, but be careful when there are difficulties with one's speech. Am I taking things out on those near and dear to me? You know, am I blaming myself? Am I reacting in some way? How am I speaking when things are difficult? Am I more frustrated? So again, so I take it out on anyone who's near? That would be predictable, right? We do that. You know, we would tend to do that. So look, look at that. You know, develop uh, skillful speech. You know, it's a wonderful area of practice. Develop skillful ways of working with conflicts. Again, something the, the world deeply needs. We all, we, we all need that. So those are six guidelines I gave last time, just reviewed. And I want to give another framework, which is this um, 
wonderful framework called the framework of the eight worldly winds. It's a teaching which uh, in a way unpacks in a little more depth the teaching of the two arrows. I interpret the teaching of the two arrows as I have received something unpleasant. That's the first arrow. Do I tend to shoot a second arrow in reaction to the first arrow? That's the teaching. Again, we shoot the second arrow. Something unpleasant happens physically. I tense. I blame myself. Something happens interpersonally. I blame myself. I blame others. I speak meanly, etc. Those are all second arrows uh, and so forth. Uh, And so this unpacks that teaching a little bit further. And it's a teaching about eight different uh, qualities that are organized into four pairs. And each of them has a pleasant aspect and an unpleasant aspect. So we're expanding that sense of working with difficulties, which would be working with the unpleasant aspects, to include how do we work with how we get stuck with pleasant experiences. Again, might not be our typical sense of why we come to meditate. Let me come to meditate and see where I get stuck with my wonderful pleasant experiences. (laughs) But it's actually pretty important. Okay, so here they are. Here Here are the four groups. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame or having a good reputation, or disrepute, having a bad reputation, not being seen well. That's the third set. And praise and blame. And the, the, um, sometimes that's translated as the eight worldly concerns or the eight worldly conditions, but it's taken to be a central practice to pay attention to these eight when they come up in your experience. And it's a beautiful way, actually, to give a lot of life and energy to our daily practice, both when we're meditating on a cushion or chair, and also when we're just going about our daily lives. Look out for when these eight appear and and try to have skillful responses to them, and everything will deepen. It gives a really a wonderful way to energize your practice because there's a danger when we meditate that we use meditation to kind of get calm and peaceful, but a little bit dull. Has anyone ever noticed that? Okay, that can happen. Okay, let me just get, oh, kind of nice, oh, calm, peaceful, a eh, little bit daydreamy. Eh, no. Okay. Um, and when you focus, you know, the uh, focus on the eight worldly winds brings in what we call the factor of inquiry, which is something that can energize practice and really bring it alive and, and, and brings out the factor of curiosity, which is really crucial in our practice. Being curious about human experience is at the center of what we do. And it makes things come alive and makes our, has our meditation be less rote, which is a danger, is a danger for our practice. So, okay, so the, um, let me, let me see. So let me talk about each of these eight and then we'll open things up. And what we want to do ultimately is be, is when any of those eight come, we want to see them more clearly, study them, see what happens when they're there because the teaching is, that when something unpleasant happens, 
we'll tend to react. We'll push it away. That's the teaching of the two arrows. And this unpacks four types of second arrows. Or four, I mean, no, that's not quite right. Four types of first arrows, right? The four types of first arrows are pain, loss, being in disrepute, and blame, right? It points out those four. But it also uh, adds the guidance to pay attention to pleasant experiences because there can be also a tendency to, in a way, grab hold of the pleasant. And those of you who've come off and know that I like to understand the core teaching is about looking out for being reactive, both by pushing away and grabbing hold, grasping. Our more obvious suffering occurs when we push away something, when we react in that way. But the teaching is that there's also a more subtle suffering when we grab hold of something pleasant. And we may, we may know that more clearly when we get really tight in a relationship or something. I want this to be this way, right? I want this good thing to be this way and I'm not flexible, right? Or I get really graspy about something that I want to have happen, right? That's good. And, and so this teaching of the eight um, worldly winds points out four major ways that we push away, we're reactive that way, that we shoot the second arrow, and four major ways that we grasp hold. We're reactive in that uh, complementary way. Okay, so pleasure and pain. Look for how that appears in one's experience. It's probably more obvious that we don't like what's physically unpleasant. But in meditation, when there's something mild or moderate, and we know that it's not causing a problem, we can sit and be aware of the unpleasant and what the mind and body do when the unpleasant is there. It's very, very uh, powerful learning. You know? And as if you take on the path of being a practitioner, you will spend a certain amount of your time being with the unpleasant. Again, a statement like that doesn't typically go in the spirit rock advertising. But it's true. If I don't say so myself. <laughs> it's, it's true. And, and so look for the opportunities to say what the unpleasant is happening now. What's my experience of that like? It can be really interesting. I know when I first was practicing, it wasn't my idea what I was there for. But I did learn to sit with, you know, some mild pain in the knee or some mild pain in the back and just watch what it was like. What's it like with the unpleasant? What's my mind do with it? Does it push it away? Does it resist? And so forth. And so we can also be with the, with the pleasant. And that's really interesting too. Go to a good meal and say, now I will study what a pleasant meal feels like. Now I will look at that. Now I will really, I'll take this meal and, okay, let me feel what the pleasant's like. What does my mind do? Does it, uh, does it tend to want more? Can it really actually experience in the present moment what's occurring? Please come in if you'd like to. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that's really interesting. Be with a pleasant experience. And again, we've, we can first maybe more easily do this 
in meditation. We have maybe one feels really calm and peaceful. Notice that is pleasant. Again, we usually don't do that. And so it's a very, actually a very powerful guidance. Be on the lookout for the pleasant and the unpleasant. When they occur, see what they're like. These are these occurrences which have occurred almost every moment or many moments in our lives and we've never studied it. It is really fascinating you know, to study. Oh, look what my mind does with the pleasant. Huh. Look what my mind does with the unpleasant. We need a certain amount of balance to do that, but it's really interesting. It will take us right to the heart of the nature of our experience and give us, and again, curiosity is so helpful uh, to, to do that. Very similar for gain and loss. When there is a loss, I, I know that one. <laughs> when there's a loss, what's it like? What does the mind do? Does it blame myself? Do I blame others? What's a gain like when something good happens? Again, the teaching is pointing to the way that these are part of the conditions of life. Sometimes gain is there, sometimes loss is there. And do we react one way or the other in a strong way? We're particularly interested in being fully with it, whatever it is, gain or loss without reactivity. That's the aim. So we can have a wise response. That's always the aim here. So can I look at that? Can I look at gain and loss? You could look at the newspaper each day, which in many ways is a report of gain and loss. You can look at the newspaper this morning. Did the Republicans or Democrats gain or lose in Ohio or Michigan or Missouri? Who gained, who lost? You know, mostly the newspapers are reports of losses. <laughs> right? That's what they're about. So you can, can look, at, look at that. Um, and of course, um, losses in particular can trigger a lot of reactivity. Can we be with loss, even major losses, and be with them? Can we, can we be with the loss of a loved one and study it? I think, and see where we get caught. Again, the guidance is really seeing where we get stuck or reactive or caught. You know, I, I can remember again about two years ago after my mother died, uh, the circumstances were such that I was on retreat uh, that started six days after she died, which was somewhat unexpected. And I got to be with grief. I was on, it was a longer retreat. I've, I've talked about that here sometimes. I was on that retreat for four weeks. I got to study a lot of grief. I got to study where my mind went when it got into a stuck place, right? And it was tremendously helpful. The whole process could move along in a wonderful way, powerful way, not always pleasant way, but it could, it could happen. And so we can, we can, again, work with loss. The key is always, where am I a little bit stuck, caught, reactive? That's what we're looking for. And what's the nature of the experience? Those are the two guides. What's the nature of the experience of gain? What's the experience of the nature of loss? How do I get stuck? And just remembering these eight um, worldly winds, worldly conditions, gives us guidance for what to look out for. So we can say, oh, you know, after, after 10 minutes, oh, I think loss is happening, <laughs> right? But it really, it changes everything. It changes everything from being on automatic 
to actually taking it as a chance to learn, to inquire. Fame and disrepute, also very powerful. How much do we do things to look good in someone else's eyes or in our community? Very powerful motivation. You know? And again, this is not saying that any of these are good or bad, but there are triggers, right? There are triggers for reactivity, for grasping and for pushing away. How much do we do things that may be not authentic in order to make an appearance, have an appearance be a certain way or be seen a certain way? For a lot of us, these, you know, th- these are actually very deep issues when we look into our own childhood conditioning. And so this, this one we can actually take very, very deeply if we, if we care to. And just to see um, how much of my activity is trying to be seen well or to be not seen well. That's very connected with the last set, which is that of praise and blame, which may be the most powerful of all of these. Again, wanting to be seen well is one thing, but to want to avoid blame may be what drives us. How many of us notice that we don't like to be blamed? <laughs> okay. 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 I, okay. I rest my case. <laughs> so, but we can look at this very, very powerful that our conditioning to not want to be blamed is so fundamental. You know, and... I mean, you know, and often, of course, we blame so that others won't blame us. Uh, This is a major factor in um, some parts of the federal government. (laughs) Okay. That that was a little bit understated, but but there's a, there's, Especially early morning. <laughs> and so, the main thing, the main, one of the main benefits of the practice is that we have these things to look for. So how to practice with them. When, we, when they are workable, try to study them. Again, make that distinction. Know what that distinction is between the workable range of the degree of difficulty. It might be one through five or six. And where it's too much and we're out of balance might be seven through 10 or eight through 10. Where it's too much, try to come back to balance. Where it's in the workable range with any of these eight conditions, study them. Look at them carefully. See what there is. Take it as learning. That's that's uh, first suggestion. Also, maybe even before we do that, name them. You know, this is unpleasant, this is pleasant. Gain is happening, loss is happening. Name them so we can be oriented. Really, really crucial. And then, of course, as I've been suggesting, explore them. What is, uh, what is occurring when there's a sense of being blamed or when I want to blame? What is occurring with loss? What is occurring with gain? Study them. What are they? Which ones are ones that hook me the most, right? See, you know, what's, what tends to trigger getting hooked? You know, look at them. Reflect, and a fourth pointer is to reflect on how they keep changing. 
you know, in the, in the tradition, part of the point of bringing these up is to see that each of them will be there sometimes and not be there sometimes and that there's, you know, that there's, uh, that they pass, that they change, that they, you know, one moment there's gain, one moment there's loss, you know. Some of you know that uh, famous Chinese story uh, where there was a uh, farmer who, uh, who had a son and they had a farm. And one day, uh, a wild horse came onto their property and the farmer and her son were able to get the horse and had the idea of domesticating it. And other people in his neighborhood said, um, oh, what good luck. And he said, don't know. Right? And then the next day, his son was uh, trying to domesticate the horse and the horse reared up, he fell off, he broke his leg. His neighbors said, what bad luck? He said, don't know. <laughs> the next day, the you know, local warlord comes by and is taking all young men to be part of the army. His son has a broken leg, can't be part of the army. His neighbors say, what good luck? He says, don't know. And you could probably keep it going, right? A few rounds, right? So um, that's one perspective, you know, that we just try to be as wise in the moment and watch out for those big stories, right? This is good, this is bad. That's part of the, the emphasis of the teaching. And so I'll close maybe with uh, just with two, uh, two readings that uh, point towards this teaching. Uh, the first is actually from the, from the Buddha. This is, a, this is a passage from the Dhammapada. And this is pointing, really the, the point of working with the eight worldly winds is to develop, especially to develop uh, many of our most wonderful qualities mindfulness, patience, and the main one is equanimity. Equanimity is the capacity to be in a balanced way with whatever comes our way. It's taken to be a very, very deep quality. And that's what this is pointing to. All of this practice points towards developing equanimity to a high degree. So this is a passage from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, which is one of the uh, early texts, one of the central texts. As a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the teachings. Virtuous people always let go. They don't go around prattling about pleasures and desires. So... That's the first passage. So if you notice yourself prattling in the next week, you know what to do. <laughs> okay. So, and the second one is from uh, Rumi. It's from a, a poem that many of you know called The Guest House, which is a wonderful poem about just being with whatever comes our way in as wise, wise a, a way as possible. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. 
a joy, a depression, a meanness, a momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. I can can relate to that one. Still, treat each guest honorably. That guest may be maybe cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Hmm. So let's sit for a moment and then we can have some discussion. So I wanted to leave a good chunk of time for discussion, sharing. It could be in response to the talk. It could be reporting some of what you might have explored if you looked yourself in the last week into challenges or difficulties or anything else that comes to mind. Question, reflection, observation. Yeah, and we'll use the mic so you can... Yeah. Uh, right back there. Yeah. I, um, and hold hold the mic up as like an ice cream cone. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we've talked about the. A um, little closer. Uh, I just don't like it. I know, but I don't. Okay. Um, we've talked. Uh, I came to your uh, judgments. Yeah. Day long seminar. Um, and you talked about the two arrows there. Yeah. And again about. Um, taking a look at um, anger and, you know, and, and uh, good or, you know, feeling happy and sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I noticed is that my brain um, doesn't like being noticed. Yeah. So when I start to, like, examine it, it kind of goes somewhere else. You know, so what do you have, like... Um, a specific method for examining, like you say, just explore your mind yeah. when you're having an unpleasant experience or an yeah. unpleasant experience. But I noticed that when I stop to do that, um, yeah. my mind kind of... It doesn't want to go there. It, it, well, it just kind of like plays hide and seek or something. Slinks away. Yeah, yeah. 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 How many can relate to that question? Okay, good. Look around, see, it's, uh, it's, it's quite common. <laughs> yeah, they could probably give an answer too. Um, well, it's, I think it's common. And um, a key, again, uh, could be remember, remember the training principle that we actually train at lower degrees of difficulty and get good at something before we go to more difficult things. So it's natural that it may be difficult to go to uh, the mind when it's angry or reactive and so forth, unless we've spent a lot of time just being with the mind where it's uh, more relaxed, nothing particularly hard is happening, you know, such as when, you know, like in our meditation here, just being with the breath, being with the mind in a relatively relaxed state and studying it in that situation. And we build up, so it may be that you need to just 
not worry too much about the difficult states if you can't go there now, but spend time which could in situations which are not so difficult or even quite pleasant. Be with, you know, be mindful of very pleasant food, right? And, and just develop your, your mindfulness muscle so that effectively the brain feels more comfortable paying attention because it's not threatening. And where it's easier, again, could even deliberately do, go do something pleasant and try to be mindful. And as well as things which are maybe more neutral, like just being with the breath. And train there. And don't worry if it's hard to go to the difficult ones. Is that, is that resonating? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Other reflections? Anything from today, please? Uh, yeah, last week I had mentioned that I was um, really interested in, like, my relationship to the first arrow. Yeah. Um, and I've been really working with that. And one thing that um, has, like, my mother-in-law actually said this, but I've been using it a lot, is, like, we don't just pause and say, ouch. Yeah. Like, we go right to, like, what did I do wrong or what couldn't I have done or whose yeah. fault is this? And so um, in working with the ouch, I, like, I think of my toddler, you know, like, if he falls... Like, I pick him up, I hold him, like, I take care of him, like, I give him that ouch, and then he yeah. moves on. Yeah. It, he doesn't have a bunch of story around it about how yeah. he shouldn't have been practicing walking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Um, so anyways, I just, I've been working with my ouch. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great observation, a very, very helpful tool. And some of you may have, may yourselves use this tool but actually, you know, and I, but I know that in, I've heard that in some groups, people take it as almost like a, a group guideline that if something difficult is said or done in the group, someone will actually say, ouch, that hurt, rather than immediately reacting. And I, I first heard this from a friend who did it with me. And I said something and she said, ouch. And, and I said, oh, this is California cute, you know. Yeah, you know, a little bit critical of it, which could have been another ouch, but I didn't say it. But then when I, when I reflected on it, it actually is exactly what we're talking about. That saying ouch, instead of just going to reaction, saying ouch to yourself, saying ouch to your child, saying ouch in a social situation, especially if you say it in a way which is not blaming, like ouch, it could, could be used in a uh, judgmental way, but if we just use it to neutrally say, this is happening, that didn't feel good. It's a very, very skillful tool. And it's essentially doing something like what uh, the teachings are pointing to, to notice the unpleasant before the unpleasant leads to the reaction. And that's exactly what you're doing. And to teach your kid that, uh, teaching your kid the two arrows before he can even say two arrows is amazing. Yeah. So. He really teaches me, but... Yeah, it's mutual, right? But, but it's, a, it's a wonderful tool. You might try that. You know, try it with your partner. Make an agreement. Because, it, because you can hear what it's doing. It's giving some space before the reaction occurs by announce, by just saying that didn't feel good. And, and, of course, the core of the teaching is knowing that when we're not mindful of the unpleasant, we'll tend to go to a pushing away reaction of some kind. And when we're not mindful of the pleasant, we'll tend to go to a grabbing hold reaction. And so if we can actually notice, oh, that felt good as well, or ouch, that it can be very skillful. Yeah. So we have uh, Elizabeth up front and then the back. Yeah. 
Okay. I just want to segue on that ouch thing. Yeah. If you're with, with a friend or even a, a companion or a stranger and they say something to you that you find offensive. Yeah. Or very unpleasant. Yeah. And then you verbalize, ouch. Yeah. To me, that would give the friend, the companion, whatever, a, the second, his ouch. Well, you're, you're, you're saying something, now you're blaming me. I caused you pain. Well, maybe, and, and so it could be a back and a forth there. So if you didn't say that ouch, if you just didn't react in the way of saying ouch. Yeah then the, con- the conflict would be ended. Yeah. And I think the co- saying ouch could actually yeah. exacerbate a conflict. Yeah. As, a, as a tool, a few, a few uh, qualifications or guidelines are in order. One of them, if you use it as a tool with others, it's actually helpful to have it as a mutually agreed upon tool. So that's what people may do in groups. So one knows why one's saying it and one, why one's doing it. Of course... We can't control other people. People, even when you say ouch, you know, people may be reactive. You know, one of the things that we discover is uh, we can be incredibly skillful in all sorts of ways with others, can use really wise and careful, caring speech, you know, do all sorts of things that are extremely skillful, doesn't guarantee anything. Sorry. Because someone, someone who's very reactive can be reactive no matter what you do. But so the two things are, um, if you're using it with a partner in a family, with a group, have it, it's better to have it be explicit because it could be misunderstood. And then the second thing is it's all going to depend on the nature of the relationship, whether you use it. Maybe more skillful sometimes just to say it to yourself. Let's use the mic here. So the key words, what I'm hearing from you is that when you use ouch, there should be a mutual agreement. That's, All parties involved know That's why the you're best. Ouch. Yeah, that's the best. So it's, it's mutually agreed upon and you know why you're doing it. And so it's not, because you know, if, if that's not the case, then people don't know why you're doing that. They could think you're California cute or something. Okay. Okay, Elizabeth. Um, well, my cat reacts to that word if said with emotion yeah. and stops doing what he was doing, whatever it was. Um, also, I've found um, a way for me, and it, it's attached to beauty. A little closer. I, I've found a way for me, and it's attached to the finding beauty for balance. Yeah. I do every once in a while, if I really need that. Um, there are are programs on the internet that have jigsaw puzzles of beautiful photographs. Yeah. And I find that in doing that, it uses enough of my other senses, sense of shape, color, and what fits to yeah. solve the problem, um, that words go away. It, it, it is, serves to remove words from activity, and that somehow brings things down to where I can work with them more more readily. Yeah, there, yeah so much like maybe some uh, body practices, yoga, qigong, taking a walk, certain other kinds of experiences with beauty can shift our consciousness so we're not so caught in the narrative or the storyline. And then we can, it helps us to sort things out. 
in a way which maybe doesn't work so much with our reactivity, but more with our wisdom. So can be very helpful. And of course, these things are very valuable. You know, when we talk about coming back to balance, it's valuable when we're out of balance. But a lot of these things, of course, are very good for all of us to do regularly to maximize balance. Yeah. I, I like the walking in many ways to do that. But my mind, when I'm walking, can keep rattling on mm-hmm. without... Right, so to know, to know what works for you. That's, that's crucial. Any others? Yeah, please. Up front, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just want to respond to the the story about the, the old man and oh, yeah. the son and the horses and yeah. there are many, many renditions of it. Yeah. And that I don't know part. Yeah. I find it very helpful. Um, I don't know where it came from. I, I realize ever since I started practicing meditation and mindfulness how I had that illusion where I convince myself that I, I know what other people feel and think. I mm. know things. Yeah. And then more I meditate and more I practice and I realize that the, the possibility of, of knowing something, it's really, it's more restricted within myself. And even mm-hmm. that, sometimes I make so many mistakes, I don't really know myself that yeah. much. And yeah. the more I practice, the more I know. And and I have to remind myself, I don't really know how other people feel, what, what's really going on, that I don't know part had saved my life yeah. many, many times. Yeah, thank you. That's very nicely said. There's a, um, There's kind of a dance between knowing and not knowing. But not knowing, for many of us, if we are... You know, have been conditioned, as I was, for example, to really focus on knowing. It's, uh, the, the emphasis on the not knowing can really open up uh, quite a few levels of practice. It can uh, bring about more curiosity, what really is the case. It can also let me see where I get fixated on thinking I know when I don't really know, right? Through maybe, it can help with getting really caught with uh, rigid views, for example, about about myself, about this person, about the world, about political views, and so forth. So, uh, the emphasis on not knowing can be really, uh, really fundamental. Uh, just to partly just to have more openness, and then of course, there you know, in a sense, the teaching on not knowing points to the possibility of deeper knowing. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it does get paradoxical. So. Yeah, yeah. Did you have one? Anything else? Just a, it, it's a possibility of of finding more freedom. Yeah. When I say I don't know, or in a sudden I feel more free. Yeah, yeah. And that, again, it's to see where we where we think we know, where we're overextending or attached to views, or rigid, or using knowledge as a defense mechanism, or any number of things. Yeah. So it's a very, very crucial point. And um, maybe I'll just teach sometime soon on not knowing. Uh, 
How many would like something on not knowing? Okay. How many know that you would like that? <laughs> okay. See, there's, there's, there can be some fun. Okay, maybe last one. Yeah. Isn't there a famous teacher who comes, or used to come here? Yeah. Uh, uh, I think from Thailand, whose mantra is kind of don't know. That's a, it's a Korean Zen teacher who, who died some years ago, Sun Sanim, mm-hmm. who, I, who I did study with a number of times. And he, his, uh, his core teaching is a little, a little more, in Zen, there's a little more of the emphasis on, you know, just uh, freeing yourself from your concepts so you can see directly. So his, his teaching was only keep, don't know mind. Just sit there and say to yourself, don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you. and you can you can look up his work. Maybe his his books may be uh, in the bookstore. What was his name again? His name is Sun Sanim, S O E N S U N I M, and quite a beloved uh, teacher who uh, uh, settled in Providence, Rhode Island, and uh, initially, I think, worked was working at the laundromat and was discovered as a Zen teacher. <laughs> and then his students said, you know, you know, we will support you. You don't have to work in a laundromat anymore. So that's the story that I remember. Yeah, so anyway, but you can, you can look up his work. It, he, he does have that teaching. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I think, why don't, I think I'm going to end, but we could, we could talk uh, just one-on-one afterwards, so just for the sake of time. So, how many of you would like to work with the eight worldly winds in the next week as a practice? This is just on your own. Uh, yeah. And so, set your intention for what's going to help you to remember to do that. It could be just uh, remembering maybe before you meditate or once or twice during the day. Let me remember these eight pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Praise and blame. If you're not doing that, of course, set your intention for anything from based on anything that might have been helpful. What was helpful from the morning and what intention do you bring out of our morning session together? Let me close by uh, remembering that we meet, we practice for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. Ultimately, our horizon is to benefit all beings. All beings includes us. So thank you very much. And uh, I think the next few weeks it'll be Sylvia, I believe. Um, and I'll <clears throat> I'll see you in September. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.